So how many of you, show of hands, are familiar with the term helicopter parenting? Right? You've heard that one before, right? Um, if you haven't, it's a term that's been around for a while. And it's a term that's used to describe when parents with good intentions usually, they, they hover. They hover over their kids because they want to protect them from natural consequences. So they hover over them. Most of the helicopter parents, they want to help, but there's been all kinds of research that's been coming out about how they're actually hurting their kids over the long run when they try to protect them from natural consequences because that's the way the world works, right? There's natural consequences for for the things that we do. And when you try to protect people from that, you can end up actually hurting them because in the future, they find out when it's too late that these choices that we make, sometimes these big choices, they have big consequences. And often they find out too late that those consequences can be devastating, absolutely devastating. Well, for the last two weeks, we've been working our way through the book of Joel. And uh, this week, as I was working through there, this, this term came into my head, helicopter pastoring, you know? And when you come to a book like Joel... I'll be honest, I'm, I'm tempted to do some helicopter pastoring because this is hard stuff. Joel's got some really hard places that it takes us because it takes us to these big themes of sin and repentance and accountability and, and all of this. And I'm tempted to just say, let's talk about things that make us feel better. And not because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do anything other than I just care about you, right? And, and don't want to see people feeling these hard things that we feel when we go to these hard places. But man, we are setting people up for a world of hurt down the road if we avoid sections of the Bible that are there for our own good. Can I get an amen to that? And we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. So we, we go to these places. Well, we got a lot to cover in this final week that we're spending in Joel. So we're going to dive right in, beginning with this. And there's a place to write it down in your insert there, this green insert. There's a place to write this down. We live in a world of cause and effect. That, that's how this world works. We live in a world of cause and effect. And in week one of this series, we opened up to Joel chapter one. And let's do that here today. A quick review on, on, on uh, this, this important little book. If you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love for you to go home with one this morning at that same table where you can pick up that cup. We also have Bibles, and we'd love for you to take one home as a free gift for you. All right, we're going to look at Joel uh, chapter 1. Let's look at verses 4, actually starting with just verse 4. Now, in chapter 1, Joel does two things. One of the things he does is he tells about this day of a reckoning that came, and then he points people towards Repentance, those are the two things that he does. So here's a little bit about that day of reckoning, and we can find it here in Joel chapter 1, verse 4. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Now, what he describes here as locusts, as he continues on, also seems to not just be this swarm of locusts, it also somehow seems to be an army. The imagery he uses is a, like an army. This is, these are verses 5 and 6, selections from there. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. The sweet wine is cut off from your mouth, for a nation has come up against my land. Powerful, beyond number. Its teeth are like lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. So, Here's the thing going into this. God had warned the people that this was coming. 
And he didn't just warn him once, he just warned him twice. If you read the Old Testament, it's time and time again. Warning after warning after warning after warning after warning that a day of reckoning was coming. And even then, after the children of Israel rejected what God had to say again and again and again and again, even then he offered them a chance to repent. And we see that in chapter 1 as well. Um, this is skipping ahead to verse 14. He says, consecrate a fast. We're going to use these same words on Wednesday. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So there's a quick summary of chapter 1. In chapter 2, which we looked at last week, Joel does two things. Joel announces that another day of reckoning is coming, and he calls for repentance. So here's the warning. We looked at this last week, and this warning appears to be a description of another unstoppable army that's about to come. Uh, let's go with verses 3, and then I've condensed verses 4 through 10. Uh, so chapter 2, verse 3, reads like this. Fire, this army's coming, fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before they get there, but after they get there, it's like a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. And then here's a condensed version of, of verses 4 through 10. And remember these descriptions that he gives. This is going to come back later. Remember these descriptions. Their appearance, this appearance of this army, is like the appearance of horses, as with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of mountains, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun, the moon are darkened, the stars withdraw their shining. Well, over the course of this series, we've been talking about what happens when we step outside of God's guardrails. And one of the reasons I knew this would be a hard series is because it takes us to those hard places because all of us have done that. We've all stepped outside. And we've also experienced what happens when others have stepped outside those guardrails and their actions affect us. You know, and, and I've talked in the past about how sometimes I wish I had pastor cam so you could see this you know, view. I would have had to turn that off last week because I, as I'm looking side to side, front to back, I mean, you could see in your faces. It was hard as we reflected on these things. Really hard. There's a place to write this in your notes too. Rebellion, it's a step towards regret. When we cross over these guardrails that God has put in place, you're taking a step towards regret, and you may not feel it right away, but down the road, choices have consequences. It'll catch up with you. And as we said last week, one of the deepest forms of pain is that pain of regret. We realize that the destruction that we brought on ourselves and worse yet, the destruction we brought on others, we realize that could have been avoided if we had listened. If we had listened to those who loved us enough to say that relationship you're in, that crowd you're with, bad news. Or if we had listened to the people that said, that choice you're about to make, are you sure you want to do that? Or that little voice of our own conscience that said, don't cross this line. This is wrong. Well, the graphic that the team created for this series, isn't this outstanding? I mean, doesn't this sum up Joel chapter 1 really, really well? There's the before, and there's the after. Choices have consequences. And the aftermath of sin and, and stepping outside of God's best for our life, it can look like this, it can feel like this. 
Well, another thought came to me as I was working on this message, and the thought was this. You know what's as bad or even worse than helicopter parenting or helicopter pastoring? Just plain hell pastoring or just plain hell, you know, parenting, where people are here. They're already here. They're on this side of the choice, and they can feel it, and they know it. And all people do is meet them with the pointing finger or meet them with the icy stare or take these people who are already down. They already feel it, and they just pour the shame on top of that and the guilt on top of that. I'd say that that's even worse when you just take the copter off and you just bring all that. Well, that's not faithful to Joel either, is it? Just like it's not faithful to the book of Joel to say we can't talk about sin or repentance, it's not faithful to leave people in that spot, excuse me, and just pile on. In chapter 2, Joel expands on what he prophesied earlier about repentance. Look at the hope that Joel offers in these words. This is Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. We looked at these last week too. Yet even now, declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Could you read these next words with me? For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. That's in Joel 2. That is in there too. Now, we need warnings. We need warnings. I needed warnings. I still need warnings. If the Bible didn't warn me about the consequences of doing knucklehead stuff, especially in junior high, especially high school, especially in college, if I didn't have those warnings, I would have done all kinds of things that I didn't do. I didn't do them because of the warnings. And those warnings helped me. Because at the time, it looked like everyone else was doing the better, right? And I was missing out on the fun. And the warning kept me in check, at least some of the times, right? Because it looked better. The better looked like what everyone else was doing. But then fast forward, right? And you begin to see that this is the consequence of so many of those choices that looked like better at the time. And now I can look back and say he was a good God who knew what was best. And those boundaries he put in place, those laws he had, were to protect me and those around me. I didn't see it at the time. At the time, I needed the warnings. But now I can see more clearly what he was trying to do. God's laws are a gift of grace, even when they seem restrictive, even when they don't make sense. And this repentance, this repentance is an invitation. That's how we said it last week. Here's, here's a, a little twist on that that you could write down in your notes this week. Repentance, it is a step towards restoration. Repentance is a step towards restoration. It's a step towards things getting better than they are now. Let these words sink in. We didn't do these words last week because now we're going to start to get into our new content here. Let these words from Joel chapter 2, verses 24 through 25 soak in. The threshing floors, this is the after that could be. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I'll restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Isn't that beautiful? I'll restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. God tells the children of Israel here, 
He will restore the year that the locusts have taken. The years. What a powerful promise. Powerful promise. Restore. And what a beautiful word. You ever seen those restoration shows? They get all kinds of restoration shows on TV, don't they? Where they they find the car that is just completely old and it's in that barn and it's all rusty. And then you get the before and you get the after. And there's these shows where they find these antiques and the thing just looks like junk. But someone sees what it could be if we restore its beauty. And then you see the before and you see the after and it's beautiful. Or they take these houses These houses that just aren't working or they're just broken down or whatever. And you see the before and then someone comes in with a vision and they restore it. And you see the what? The after and it's beautiful. It's beautiful. What God's going to do, if he's going to be true to these words, he's going to restore the cosmos. He's going to restore his world on this Big old cosmic scale. And Joel's not the only one who says this is going to happen. Take a look at this. Here's just kind of a a bunching of some things we see in Joel, but we don't just see them in Joel. God will restore his creation on a cosmic scale. We see that God's spirit is going to fill his people, and we see that in Joel, but we see that in more than Joel. We also see in Joel that, that God is going to confront evil among the nations, but we see that in more than Joel. We also see that God's going to renew all creation, all of it. But we see that in more than Joel. Last week, we spent some time looking at that first bullet. We read from Joel about the spirit, how it was going to be poured out on people. And we saw that on the day of Pentecost, that came to pass. What we'd like to do this week is spend some time exploring those other two themes. So let's start with this idea of, of God as part of his restoration project, confronting evil. And he's got to do that. We know this, right? He's got to. It's, if you're going to do a restoration project and you have a rusty car, before you can restore it, you've got to get rid of the rust, right? If you've got mold in your house and you want to restore that house, what do you got to get rid of? The mold. You, you, to restore something, you have to get rid of, rid of what's destructive so you can begin rebuilding. Well, Joel is just one of several prophets who prophesied that a day is coming when God is going to bring his justice on a massive scale. Let's turn now to Joel chapter 3. Here's some of this new content we'll get into. Joel chapter 3, let's go verses 1 and 2. Joel chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. For behold, behold, (laughs) for behold, in those days and at that time, When I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I'm going to gather all the nations and I'm going to bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. All right, let's talk about this one a little bit. So if you were to look on ancient maps and you were to look for this valley of Jehoshaphat, you wouldn't find it. This is a word picture. The, the, the translation means valley where God has judged. So he's talking about this, this not so much a geographical location as more as something that's going to happen, this event that's going to happen where he's going to judge. The God of Scripture is a God who sees. He sees injustice. He sees abuse. He sees evil. He sees disobedience. And he sees when that happens to you. And he sees when you do it to others. He's a God who sees. 
And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so this, this wording of justice that we see and judgment that we see in the Old Testament, we should expect to see that in the New. And there's many people who say when Jesus talks in Matthew 25 about there's going to come that day when the Son of Man judges and he separates the nations like the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, they, they say that's drawing from this, some people do, some of the scholars All right, let's jump ahead, verses 9 through 10. The warning that we saw in chapter 1, the warning that we saw in chapter 2 about this unstoppable army, it appears again in chapter 3. This is Joel chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for what? Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say... I'm a warrior. First time reading through, I'm like, what was this? And one of the scholars said, here's what's, what's this. What, what they're talking about here is they're saying, you're not going to be able to be on the sidelines in this. There is a war coming. It is God coming worn against injustice. And whether you want to be in that battle or not, you're going to be in it. The warriors, you're in. Those of you who've never picked up a weapon in your life, well, turn your pruning hooks into spears. Because there's no one that's going to be on the sideline on this. We're all going to be in this battle. And this battle is going to be God against injustice. And whoever's on that side of injustice, it's going to be a losing battle. That's right. This is it. This is a day of judgment that no one can escape. Well, as I was reading and rereading Joel this week, the imagery that Joel was using started sounding really familiar. All of this wording that just seems like, why, why are you including this in there with, with a war and with locusts? Some of these words, sun and moon and stars, smoke and darkness and blood, horses and chariots and a human army that resembles locusts and has teeth like lions. I'm like, where have I heard that before? Like, I got to turn to the book of Revelation. Doesn't that ring some bells to some of you if you've read the book? Well, look at this. I found this in chapter 9. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. This is in the New Testament, very end of the Bible, book of Revelation. The fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft to the bottomless pit. And from that shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. Their faces were like human faces. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. Some of this imagery, it's as if Joel's prophecy that he was given, the word that was given to Joel, and this vision that was given to John, it's as if God was giving them the same thing. Does the New Testament warn of a day of judgment? Yeah, it, it does. Okay, let's go back to Joel. Back to Joel. Chapter 3, verse 13. Here's another just, at least to my ears, sounded strange. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow. Now, I'm reading through this. I'm thinking, oh, okay, this is part of that restoration, because it sounds like restoration language until you get to that last line that says, for their evil is great. Why would they have all these good things happening? The only way I can reconcile in my head these things are remembering that this is pro prophetic poetry, prophetic poetry. 
and it can be happening, I think, on a couple levels. So on one level, you have language of restoration. Where there once was nothing left, now there will be a restoration. There will be a great harvest. The wine press, which once had no grapes to make wine from, it's now going to be full. The containers are overflowing. So while that's true on one level, there's also this level that connects with that phrase, for their evil is great. And that comes back to that whole idea of judgment. It comes back to the idea that you can't restore Europe if Hitler's still in power. What do you got to do to restore Europe? You have to take Hitler out of power. You can't have restoration without judgment. Okay, so remember the imagery that we just read here, this imagery of sickles and harvest and wine press in Joel. Does that language trigger any thoughts. I turn back to Revelation. Revelation. And I found this in chapter 14. Then I looked and behold, a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like the son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out from the temple calling out in a loud voice, loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. And he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. And another angel came and the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for our 1600 stadia, which is more than 180 miles. Sounds to me like Joel and John both saw something and that something was really similar when they were given a glimpse of the future. Let's go back to Joel, Joel 3.16. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Now this is a juxtaposition, isn't it, with chapter 2 if you're here last week. Because last week, chapter 2 opens up with this, these people, these watch people on the tower, they see this army's coming, so they grab their shofar and they blow it. They're in Jerusalem, they see an arm, army coming, but then they realize, oh no, this is an army that God has sent against us. So here they are in Jerusalem, they're seeing God coming against them. Wow, they're blowing their trumpets in vain. But now, in chapter 3... God is what? He's dwelling with his people. He's there. God is with them as judgment is going out. He's roaring too. This is fascinating. He's roaring like a lion. That is powerful imagery. Powerful. In that time and in that place, what's more terrifying than hearing a lion's roar? And it can be heard for a long way. There's no need for the people of God to blow a shofar now because God is roaring and he's roaring from Zion as if to say, these are my people. Back off. Wow. Verse 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be what? Holy. There's another word that tempting to skirt around, right? Holy. Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers. This is interesting language too. Strangers shall never again pass through it. Verse 18. And in that day, the mountains shall drink, drip 
sweet wine. The hills shall flow with milk and the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. This prophecy from Joel sounds a lot like the vision that was given to John. Let's go back to Revelation. Now almost to the very end, Revelation 21 verses 1 through 4. John caught this vision. He said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Amen. And in this vision that John got, there's so much more there. You can look it up for yourself. Revelation 21, 22, it's, it's beautiful. In this vision that he got, you didn't have to shut the city gates at all. Not only did you not have to put a watchman, you didn't have to shut the gates. Because there were no strangers coming in in the sense of dangerous people coming in. Everyone coming in now walks in the white light of God's truth. Jumping ahead to verse 27 in Revelation 21, nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Both descriptions, both descriptions, in Joel and in Revelation of the city of Jerusalem, the restored city, have water flowing from the heart of it. Chapter 22, 1 through 5, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and of the lamb through the middle of the street and out of the city. On either side of the river, the tree of life, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and they'll need no more light or lamp of, or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever If God can restore the world like this, what could God do in your life? If he can make this happen, if he can make this happen, what could he do in your life when it comes to restoration? Here's how we put that question in your notes. Who are you trusting with your after? If you got something precious that's been beat up, if you find that car that could be worth a million dollars if you get it fixed up, you want to trust somebody, right? Who can restore it? You guys, you're, you are precious in the sight of God. Trust Him with your restoration project. Trust Him with that. So far in this series, we've talked a lot about the aftermath. What could the after of your aftermath look like? I asked the, the team if they could do this with this great image they, that they created. What if we flip it? Right? What if we flip it? There's a whole lot of us, right? We feel this right now. We're, we're on this side of it, right? 
or we know people in our lives that are on this side. What does God want to do? He wants to restore. Maybe today your before photo looks like this. Think of what your after photo could look like. And let's not just stop with you. Because we are you, right? We're a bunch of yous. We're y'alls or whatever. Imagine what could happen. Imagine what could happen if we became a community of restoration projects. Wouldn't that be beautiful? Where we loved each other enough to not be helicopter parishioners, where we never talk about sin and we never talk about restoration. In fact, we talk a lot about it in healthy ways, in biblical ways. And what if we were not this group of just hell without the copter parishioners where someone comes in trying to put their life back together and they're met with pointing fingers and they're met with icy stares and people just heap shame on them when they're already feeling this. What if we took a healthy biblical view of, hey, we are all restoration projects, every one of us, and look what God's doing. He's doing something beautiful. You know, I, I think about how when they have those car shows at the state fairgrounds, a lot of people show up for those. And I think about how many of these restoration shows are big hits on cable. People are drawn to seeing things restored. How beautiful, how beautiful. If more and more and more, that's one of the things that, that we just see. And we celebrate and we welcome Wherever you're at, if you're like way down there on the continuum, if you're here, if you're somewhere here, you know, we're just, we're celebrating it all and we're loving each other and cheering one another on. Well, Lent is a great season to have coming up next, isn't it? It's almost as if we put these two together, you know, on purpose or something, you know, almost, right? Let's take this season of Lent. Let's press in. What does it mean to really be, really be walking the way of Jesus? Let's press in. Let's pray. Let's fast. Let's, let's reflect on our lives. So when Easter comes, we can really celebrate all out. Well, w- one of the things we're going to do this Lent, we're going to be introducing some songs that will be new to us. Many of you have heard these songs maybe on the radio or, or in your, somewhere, but, but they're new to us as a church. And we're going to introduce one of those now that'll hopefully come back a couple times throughout Lent. So I'm going to pray. I want to invite the worship band to, to come on up. And, and this song is a little bit different. Jason will probably give a little bit of a lead in here. The first time um, that I heard this song was at the Target Center. So I had the opportunity to hear this song with thousands of voices singing. And the content of this song is it's, it's about our need in this broken world for someone who can fix it. And then there's a whole lot of imagery surrounding the one who was worthy, um, the one who is referenced in Revelation to restore that. Again, it's a little bit of a different song, but it's a good one. It's a good one. I mean, oh, yeah, let me pray about that whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> Lord, Lord, thank you. Thank you for spirit-inspired poets like Joel who provided imagery that's so rich, we're still, still processing it thousands and thousands of years later. And thank you for more modern poets 
who created songs like this. Help us to make full, help us to seize this opportunity to engage you through this art. In Jesus' name, amen.